He speaks to us. Would you open our ears and our hearts as we hear and listen? Amen. The, the last time I, I preached here was on John's first chapter of John, which is one of the most magnificent passages in all scripture and on which it is difficult to be anything other than uplifted. The passage tonight is difficult to be anything other than depressed. Um, and you've got an Ulster person speaking on it, so double depression. It comes at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, almost at the end. Um, and um, there's only one more sermon to come, right on the end, on the wise and foolish builders, house on the sand, house on the rock, which, which Andrew Hellstrap will be speaking on next week. Um, and here at the end of uh, the greatest sermon ever preached, um, it's quite useful to look back at the structure because if you do preach, you think a lot about structure. And if you look at the structure of this, what Jesus did was in chapter 5, he talked about the sort of characteristics a Christian should have and the Beatitudes, the influence a Christian should have as salt and light, and Christian righteousness by interpreting the old law in a completely new way. And then in chapter 6, he introduces the whole question of choice. Two. There's two ways. There's two ways to pray. There's two ways to give. There's two ways to fast. There's two ways to build up your treasure in heaven or on earth. And there are two sorts of ambitions. The ones that think of the things on earth and the one that builds up treasure in heaven. And so he goes through this, these two ways. Um, and then he says, at the beginning of this chapter, was this mini-service started, but I've just given you all these two ways, and that's not for the purpose of you looking around you and saying, oh, I can see what way that person's doing it, and I can see how that person's doing it. No, no, you're meant to judge yourself. The two ways are for you to judge yourself, not to judge others. And if that, when you judge yourself, becomes overbearing and just depressing, then Jesus preaches the entire resources of heaven are available to you. Ask and you'll receive. Knock and the door will be open to you. And then he, last week we had Steve Truscott speak on entering the narrow gate and the broad gate. You think to yourself, end the sermon. Perfect, done. But he doesn't. He goes on. And he goes on because... What he's been saying all along here is there's two ways. There is no middle way. There is no third way. There's only two ways, and there's a choice. And he ends with this choice. And now he comes to this. He comes to this passage, which I will now read. And you, you may need to watch the last episode of um, Happy Valley in order to cheer yourself up <laughs> after this. Um, so it's uh, Matthew 7 and, uh, and verse 15 uh, through to 20, 23. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. 
Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I don't think there is a, a sadder thing to read than those last words. Uh, people who believed that they were following Jesus only to find out when it was too late that they hadn't been. You see, I'd like to ask this question. How many of us know false prophets? So when you read this false prophet, when I read that about false prophets, you went, oh, I know exactly who they're talking about. Met one of those, got one of those. Yep, in fact, there's lots of them. But they have to exist, otherwise Jesus wouldn't give this warning. And what's more, in Matthew 24, verses 10 and 11, he tells us this. That when he's describing the end times, and we're much closer to the end times than Jesus was, that much is certain, he says, at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. So in other words, there are more of them now than when Jesus spoke. Jesus warned that as we get towards the end, there's going to be more of these false prophets. And yet, we don't encounter them or we don't feel to. We don't go around saying, you know, there's a real trouble, false prophets. Why is that? Well, I think it might be because we've misunderstood what a prophet is. We tend to think of prophets as someone who's going to say, do you know what? Um, 23rd of December, 2030, end of the world. And we just laugh. Or someone actually prophesies what's going to happen in the future. And we don't meet that many people who tell us categorically what's going to happen in the future. And sure enough, it's happened in the past. The date comes, the date goes, and they all look foolish. So if you think of that image of a prophet, then you're pretty relaxed. What's to warn about those? But that's not what a prophet is in the Bible. That is, that is I would say, almost a satanic view that's been twisted to lull us into a false sense of security about this word. Because in Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 to 12, the Israelites were told when they were entering the promised land, they were told quite clearly something that they simply mustn't do. And that was to do anything at all which was to try and find out the future. It said, let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or his daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcrafts, catches spells, is a medium, is a spiritist, or is an augur or consults the dead. 
No one must do that. If they do it, it is detestable to God. It's detestable to do anything at all at that time that was felt to be the normal way to find out what the future held. It's detestable. And we all know that Saul went to see the witches of Endor to conjure up Samuel, and it was an abomination in God's sight. Because that's not what prophets did. What a prophet did was primarily he came along and he told people about God. He told people about what God wanted them to do and warned them of the consequences. And the important thing for a prophet was how close was he to God? Deuteronomy 34.10, describing the death of Moses, says this about him when he's died. No prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. That's the key attribute. Not all the miracles that got them out of Egypt, not looking after them for 40 years in the desert. No, he knew God face to face. And in Exodus 33 and 11, it says, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend. That's the key thing that a prophet could do. And that's what the prophets did. They basically knew what God wanted and they basically pointed out to Israel, you're on the broad way. And if you carry on on the broad way, it will end in destruction. The destruction and consequences was a secondary thing. The real message of a prophet was turn back onto the narrow way. Time and time again, you read Isaiah, you read Jeremiah, you read them, and that's the real burden of their message is, I see what God is saying, I'm talking to God, God has spoken to me, and you must turn back to the narrow way. And that's why Jesus puts this in directly after the narrow and the broad way. Yes, the Assyrians conquered Israel and the Babylonians conquered Judah, but that wasn't the main point. The main point was to warn them that destruction was coming unless they returned to the narrow way. So now that you understand what an Old Testament prophet was primarily, what's a false one? What is a false one? Well, the first thing Jesus tells us about them is they're hidden. Because why does a wolf put on sheep's clothing if not to hide themselves amongst the sheep? To be accepted into the flock. And Jesus has made it plain to us that wolves and sheep don't mix. Because when he describes himself as the good shepherd, it's to defend and to lay down his life when the wolves come, unlike the hired help who will run away. And the wolf in sheep's clothing is told quite clearly that the wolf knows that they're a wolf. Inwardly, they're ferocious wolves. The wolf knows it's a wolf. This isn't a deceived Christian who thinks he's a Christian when he's not. This is a wolf who knows he's a wolf and is wearing sheep's clothing in order to be accepted within the Christian circles. They talk like Christians. They use the same language as Christians. So what do they actually do? Well, thankfully, we have a, a, a description of what they do. 
in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, false prophets came along when Jeremiah was saying what was going to happen, and they said, no, it's not. And the false prophets, this is how God spoke. I have heard that the prophets say who prophesy lies in my name. They say, I had a dream, I had a dream. How long will this continue in the hearts of these lying prophets who prophesy the delusions of their own minds? Do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. They fill you with false hopes. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord says you will have peace. And to all who follow the stubbornness of their own hearts, no harm will come to you. That's what false prophets do. They tell you that what you're doing is fine. They say things like, I know the Bible says that God doesn't want you to do this, but God would never punish anyone who means well. They say to you, okay, technically it's a sin and you shouldn't be doing it, but what harm are you doing? If everyone's having a good time, where's the problem? I'm sure God doesn't mind. You're at peace. When the Bible tells us and God tells us in his word, you're not at peace. What you're doing is wrong. Because we are called to serve a living God, to love him with all our heart and soul and strength, and to serve each other by loving our neighbors ourselves. This is what the broad road is all about. It's broad because basically you can pretty much do whatever you like on it. You can please yourself. Wolves like to persuade you that the narrow way is much broader than it is. That walking the narrow way actually requires very little restriction of anything on your own belief and your own behavior. Would God really allow anyone to be led to destruction? If I say to you, have you heard anyone say those sorts of things? How can a loving God destroy people? I'd imagine a lot more hands would go up than when I said, have you heard a false prophet? But that is a false prophet speaking. Wolves want to fudge the distinction. The next bit will come as no surprise because at this point it is necessary to put in the obligatory quote from C.S. Lewis. <laughs> in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he described how as a teenager at school he was encouraged to broaden his mind. He says this, I was soon altering, I believe, to one does feel. And oh, the relief of it, from the tyrannical noon of revelation, I passed into the cool evening twilight of higher thought, where there was nothing to be obeyed and nothing to be believed except which was, which was either comforting or exciting. Because that's what the broad road is. If it comforts you and if it's exciting, it's fine. There are no rules other than those. And that's what the, the wolf in sheep's clothing is telling the sheep. Now, I have a, 
a picture. I don't know whether David can get it up. It's a picture that used to be in my grandmother's house. She, she was a rather stern and organized and very reformed Christian lady who I have many memories of, but very few of her ever laughing. And um, this, is a, this, is a, this is a picture by, Victorian picture by Mary Evans. And I used to look at it when I was in the house, and I used to look at it, and, and to be honest, I used to look at it and think the Broadway looked much more interesting. Um, the Broadway has got, you probably won't be able to see it, but the Broadway's got a theater in it, a dance hall, and a pub. Um, they, the other way looks like a nice Sunday afternoon walk, but the Broadway has its attraction. The Broadway, interestingly, is saying welcome, whereas the small door is saying nothing at all. And so you can look at this and you can turn around and, and, and joke about it and say, look, we all know now there are dancing and pubs and theatres are available on the narrow way. I always think it's interesting that when you're almost at destruction, there's a train. Um, <laughs> never quite worked out what was wrong with trains. But, but what, what really is missing, what we would never point to now, and I think is interesting in this picture, is that big signpost down the bottom that's got the red and black stripes on it, like danger stripes. Because that's a sign that points one way, death and destruction, it says, and the other, life and salvation. A choice. When's the last time that you ever heard anyone say anything as bold as that? You are on the way to death and destruction. This is the way to life and salvation. Because what the wolves want to do is cover that sign up, or even better, dig it out, so that people don't know. They can just choose which one they want to go on. I think it's probably enough of that picture, David. <laughs> um, um, so I don't think there could be anything more serious than being able to identify these wolves in sheep's clothing. And um, Jesus gives us three ways to identify them. And he does it by changing metaphor. And he changes metaphor from wolves to trees. And he does that because, unlike a wolf in sheep's clothing, a tree cannot disguise itself. It may take some time. It may be difficult to identify what type of a tree it is. But if you watch it long enough, eventually it will give itself away. It has to. A thorn bush might look like a vine, but it will never grow a grape. And similarly, thistles might possibly look like a fig plant, but it will never produce a fig. So you just have to watch and be patient long enough because a tree cannot disguise itself. And so the fruit will come out. And therefore, this gives a test because the seeds of the fruit will make it clear. And so that test can be applied to look at the lives of these false prophets. What sort of fruit have they got? Is it the type of fruit that's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control? 
Or is it a rather different fruit completely? And if you watch long enough, that will become apparent. But Jesus then changes this image, not from two different types of fruit, but to the same fruit, some of it good and some of it bad. And what he's saying here is, there's, there's more to looking and testing false prophets than just their own lives. Examine their message. I'm in good company here because John Calvin agreed with Martin Luther and said that those who confine this passage to merely examining the life of a false prophet are mistaken. It applies also to their teaching. And, thankfully, Jesus also agreed. In Matthew 12, you will, dis you will, you will read how he um, uh, was talking about the, uh, the, the Pharisees. And um, he spoke about the Pharisees and he said, For a tree is recognized by its fruit, you brood of vipers. How can you who are evil say anything good? He quite clearly takes the same idea, a couple of chapters later on, of fruit and message and applies it to the Pharisees in a pretty brutal way that ends up with, on the day of judgment, you will be judged for every careless word you have spoken. So you look at their message. It's, um, it's, it's in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1, we are told to look at the message and we were told to examine it. John says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And this is the challenge that's facing us. When you hear things, you have to judge it back against Scripture. You have to judge it back against what is said in God's Word and revealed. Because... What's revealed in God's word is revealed by the ultimate prophet of them all. Prophet in the sense that I described it to you, in the biblical sense. Jesus. Because Jesus did not only see God face to face. Jesus was God. John 14, he says this to his disciples. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. That's how close he was to God. I am in the Father, and the Father's in me. The words I say to you are not just my words, rather it is my Father living in me who is doing the work and speaking. So we need to test anything that anyone says to us against what Jesus said, because that is the ultimate test. And finally, because fruit bears seed, there's a third test. And the third test for false preachers is this. What's growing from their seed? What is the impact of their teaching? Does their teaching build up a group of Christians who want to serve each other and serve God, or does it build up something where there is bitter division and ungodliness and envy, actually looking at the result of their fruit And just as before, Jesus is giving this warning and these judgments, again, not for us to go around and say, 
That's a false prophet. That's a false prophet. He's doing it so that we are not deceived. He wants you to do it for yourself so that you are not deceived. Because remember, this passage, chapter 7, starts with, judge not lest you be judged. This is not for us to go around judging people and saying to people, I think you're a false prophet. It's for you not to be deceived, for me not to be deceived. And that's when we get to understand this pretty horrendous last part of this passage. Because it's those people who are deceived that end up being the ones described here. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 24, for many false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. But I've told you ahead of time so you're warned. Because what the wolves are after, forget the image of wolves and sheep, because that's just an image. They're not actually after our lives. The wolves aren't after Christian lives. They're after Christian souls. They're after you believing that your spiritual walk is in the narrow way when it isn't on the narrow way at all. They're after the ultimate thing of the description here of these very sad people who said, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform miracles? And basically, the wolves have deceived them. They were not on the narrow way. And Jesus says, I never knew you. So, what are we to do to ensure that we are on the narrow way? And I finish off with reminders of the things I've already said. The first thing has got to be to fix your eyes on Jesus. Every day, make sure that through the study of scripture and prayer, you're looking as fully into his wonderful face as you possibly can. So that the things of the world that might tempt you grow strangely dim and it becomes easier for you to give that daily sacrifice of your life conformed not to the world, but to his will. Because verse 21 makes it quite clear Lord, Lord, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's the first thing. Fix your eyes on Jesus every day. The second thing is to check your own fruit. Am I growing good fruit? Am I showing the fruits of the Spirit in my life? Remember the first part of chapter 7, this is not for you to judge other people. You're to cast the beam out of your own eye before you look at the speck in someone else's. So spend time each day with Christ in God's presence, examining what you've done that day and asking, has this day shown the fruits of the Spirit? And then the third test, which is one that, that I apply and fail very, very often, and it's this one. It's ask yourself, when was the last time I did something or did not do something that I really wanted to do because I knew it was God's will? 
When did I last do something or not do something that I really wanted to do because I knew it was God's will? Because if you can't remember that, then there's only two answers. One is you really are walking so closely with God that God's will and your will are so close, they're like that. That there is not a paper thread to put between your will and God's. And if you have got, if you're really honest with yourself, I think you might doubt that explanation. Because even Christ had that tension when he prayed in Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done. So the other explanation is, have you basically started to make the path that you're following so happy and so comfortable that it accommodates absolutely everything you want to do? And it's not uncomfortable anymore. There aren't any challenges anymore. Have you ha perhaps been listening to some wolves in sheep's clothing? Now, I know this is an odd way to end a sermon because it's not a very uplifting note on which to end, but I'm afraid it's pretty much the way that Jesus ended his sermon. And perhaps just for once, it might be better for us to end with a little bit of discomfort and challenge because perhaps it might be good for us. Amen. Let's spend some time digesting and reflecting on what we've just heard, particularly the, the three challenges that we were given at the end.